Join AIA's Clay Hall as he interviews guests who will share their successes and sometimes challenges that we can all learn from. We don't just dip our toes into the most important issues in the promotional products industry. We cannonball into them to help entrepreneurs grow and succeed in this ever-changing promotional products industry. All right, well, welcome to On Air with AIA. I'm Clay Hall, your host, and today I'm pleased to be with Eric Coriel, author of Revolutionized Teamwork, uh, executive coach, and all-around great guy. So, Eric, welcome to the show, man. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, so, what what I'm really interested in talking about is how you got to writing this book and how you made the journey from, you know, all these organizations that you either been the CEO or, you know, managed at a very high level and what, how did that inform your thinking about teamwork and how teams are, you know, generally dysfunctional right. or at best functional, but rarely accountable. Right. right. And, yeah. and I know that's the whole thing. And I hadn't even thought about that until we talked, you know, several months ago and you led us through that kind of a grueling session. Um, to get there, right? And I think that was over a couple of days. And so, so how'd you get here? Sure. Well, it started with my first job out of college and, and I was on a variety of different teams. And after a period of time, I, I started to notice that we kind of had a typical process of dealing with issues and speak for myself, I, I ignored them, uh, hope they went away and then realized that didn't work. So I would start talking to my teammates about it, usually about somebody else who wasn't performing or doing something that was driving us crazy. And that never really solved it. So eventually we just kind of looked to the leader and expected that they would take care of it. And if they took care of it, great. The next time we had a problem, we kind of looked to the leader to take care of it. And if they didn't take care of it, the next thing you know, we were grousing about the leader. And that was a pattern I watched play out over and over and over in all the different teams I was on. Until one day I got onto a different team that was just very different. It was, it was a highly functional team. As issues arose, we kind of talked to each other directly. We worked them together as a group and it was fun. And, and we were much more successful. And I couldn't like wait to be on that team, you know, come to work and be on that team because we were going to take over the world, right? And then I got to experience more of the old pattern. Then I got to experience it again on a different team that was very highly functional. And I started wondering, okay, what's the difference? And then as I got into a leadership role, found a lot of the same patterns I saw in those teams I was on before played out. And as a leader, it was really frustrating because I felt like everything was kind of on my shoulders. And I didn't want that and I wasn't good enough, right? So I'm like, guys, you're gonna have to start saying what you feel and we're gonna to start talking through our real issues together. So just kind of through trial and error, started to piece it all together, what's required to actually make that happen. And and with every job I had, the, the more I, I paid attention to it, the more I saw the same things and then finally started to figure out, okay, what do you gotta to do to make it all happen? And that's kind of what led to the book. Got it, got it. So, um, you know, when you were working with, with the leadership team at AIA, the, the one thing to me, and it, this stuck with me, and this is one of those pet peeve deals, is using inclusive pronouns, right? Yes. We should, or they should, and all that. And it took everything I had to like not do that, right? Like not yes. say, even in that meeting with you, yes. right? Um, so, you get you get to the idea of the book, but what was what was really the impetus? A, write it all down and then start training on it, right? Like right. and and how has that gone for you? Because you've coached a lot of different organizations, both ones you've worked for and ones that you you know have contracted with. So tell me a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, so you know, some of those things to make a team function are purely structural, right? Purpose and metrics and shared fate. But then there's another component to that, and that's really how we behave and how we interact with each other. And really at the core to make this happen is you got to build trust. And what I discovered is trust is broken when someone speaks on behalf of something other than themselves. So if I come into a meeting and say, you know, well, Johnny and I are we're talking or we think, that other person unconsciously is going to realize, wow, you've been talking at my back or you've been processing this, you know, less than a face-to-face -face way. So what I've kind of learned is that when, and it's probably one of the most important things I get to share with teams, is that whenever you talk, you can talk only from your own reference. And what that means is, as you said, there's no inclusive pronouns. So I call them no group pronouns. You can't use the word we, they, our, anybody, everybody. I mean, outside the team, you can, you know, we got it done or we're struggling. But when you're working through an issue, you don't want to use those words because that's how teams will avoid their real issues. Someone will say something like, well, you know what our problem is? Our problem is we don't follow process. Well, who's we, right? And it's our way of avoiding talking about what we have to, right? Another thing is I, I don't allow questions to be asked that aren't preceded by a statement because when I ask a question, if I start with a question, that's almost always where the communication breakdown is going to take place. Like as soon as I ask a question, you are going to quickly and instantly, almost unconsciously, you know, start to paint yourself, why is he asking that question? What answer does he want to hear? And those are two things that are just opposite what I was always taught. Right? But what I found is if people follow those rules, you can work through almost any issue in a much more constructive and less judgmental way. Well, gosh, and you just hit on the other one that uh, is I'm still struggling today. And this is months later, right, of practicing it all the time. Uh, start with a statement, then ask your question. And right. you will hear in our meetings now, right. some, like I've said it and other people say it. Okay, I'm going to make my statement. Right. Right. And when it doesn't happen and you leave with a question, people kind of look at you weird now. Like, um, good. hey, you're asking a question. What what do you right. think? Right? What do you think? Right. And, um, and and that that's really made made a big, a big change. Um, so, you know, you you have in the book I and mean, there's this is your book is fantastic. And, you know, it's a it's a short read, but dense from my perspective. Um, sure. Maybe I'm a little slower than most. <laughs> You've got um, some exercises in here. One of them is the decision matrix. Yeah. So how did you how did you get to the decision matrix, and what kind of you know what formulated that for you? Right, and so that kind of gets to the whole issue of, of managing what is a team issue versus what is a leader issue, and or decision. You know, you know, does the leader make this decision or does the team make this decision? And as I've been working with teams now for a while, one of the things I one of the patterns I notice is that people tend to look to the leader and expect that they're going to make the decision or solve the problem. And yet in talking to the leader, they're expecting the team to make the decision or solve the problem. So this exercise, what it does is it, it just gets the team and the leader together and, and says, okay, what are the key decisions we have to make over the course of a year that affect our ability to achieve our purpose, right? Right. And so um, we literally just list them out. And then the leader, because it's really the leader's call, the leader then will say, okay, um, these are the decisions I want to make. You know, at the end of the day, this is my decision. But the rest of the decisions I expect you to make. Now, those decisions will have different degrees. Some they'll say, you know what, I expect you to make this, John, or you make this decision, Mary. But my only request is before you make the decision, you come talk to me. Uh, I want to at least be able to weigh in, share my perspective. But you know what, even if we disagree, I expect you to go make the decision you think's best. 
or sometimes the leader will say, you know, make the decision, but can you just keep me in the loop on these kind of things, right? And, or, or a lot of times, more often than not, the leader will say, you know what, I expect you to make the decision, go make it. I don't really need to know about it. And I consistently find people will assume the leader wants to make it or, or you know, at a much different level than actually the leader does. And by doing that exercise and making it very clear, it does two really powerful things. It creates clarity, right? So clarity creates freedom and freedom creates speed. I also call it the greatest gift for a new employee because when a new employee starts a you know, job or a team, it takes them usually about a year to figure out what decisions they can and can't make. And they figure it out by kind of getting their hands slapped or they're back patted or they hear stories from their teammates and half the time they're wrong anyway, right? So if you can get that document that says, hey, here's the decision you can make, here's what I need to be kept posted on or I want to consult it on, right up front, it just makes it a lot easier to do your job and you can hit the ground running really quick. And on the other side, from a leader's perspective, you know, having established clarity there, it, it keeps them from being called crucified. And by that, I mean, very often teams will look to the leader to make a decision and solve it. And at some point, a leader won't solve the problem to their satisfaction, and then the group will turn on the leader. So it minimizes the amount of time the team is looking to the leader to say, hey, make this decision. So they're only making the ones that they should be or want to be making, and the rest, you know, they, they put back on the employee. And so it has a lot of benefits. So while it may take time up front, it, it saves time tremendously on an ongoing basis. Gotcha. Hey, so I just want to shift gears a little bit um, because we, um, within AI, went through this. And I just want you to talk a little bit more about this, uh, about breaking the emotional contract. Because we, we've, you know, in holding each other accountable, that's happened a few times. And I can tell you it's uncomfortable when it happens to you. I think that's the key as to why teams tend not to talk about their real issues. And, and I call it the psychological contract. And I call it that because on most teams, there isn't an, an agreement that's never spoken. It's unwritten. That's why I call it psychological. But that agreement we have with each other is that, look, I won't talk about you or your department's performance. You just don't talk about me and mine. And I think most teams actually, most you know, people in the teams collude to avoid talking about their real issues. They'll talk about their real issues in the meeting after the meeting or the bars and the bathrooms and the hallways, but very few teams on their own will actually talk about them together. And I think it's this contract, so to speak, that keeps it from happening. And I know it's a contract because, you know, if you think about it, if someone on your team right now were to start talking about your performance in front of everybody, your natural feeling would be that of betrayal. I mean, how dare you? You know, you just broke the deal and you'd have no choice but declare thermonuclear war, right? And go right back at that person. And so understanding that's that's kind of what gets in the way for most teams is the first step. But then the second step is you got to go break it. And what I've learned is you can't just start doing this tomorrow because that contract is so strong. So before you can break, so to speak, that contract, the team has to have what I call a shared fate. In other words, what happens to one has to happen to all, and it has to be a significant enough shared fate that will motivate everyone to say it. So if you've ever been on a great team, you go back to that team. Invariably, there was some, you know, my success was intertwined with yours, my failures intertwined with yours. Therefore, I was motivated to say what needed to be said. But then the second thing it was, it was the trust, and you trusted each other's intent. You knew that they were there either help you get better or help the team get better. And if you have those two things in place, then and only then can you go break that contract. And you break that contract by, by learning to have healthy conversations around what are expectations on this team and where might I not be meeting those expectations. 
And once you start to do that, the contract gets broken and the team becomes healthy and then they can start dealing with their issues together. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting to kind of go through that process because we've had, you know, like I said, had that come up a few times. And boy, the first time you go through it, it it's very uncomfortable. Right? Yes. Wait, 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 hey, is this like a personal attack? And it's not meant that way. It's like, hey, yep. we're all, you know, your success to your point, your success is, is my success. And so we need to, to work on this together. Um, so what what are your um What's your advice for a company that might be struggling with some teamwork things right now? Like, how would they get started in this process? Yeah, so I think for any given team, I think it really starts with the leader, and the leader's got to decide: Do I? How do I want to manage accountability? And that's really at the core of all this. And you know, we, accountability, I think, is kind of a misunderstood term. We tend to define it as, well, you do what you say you're going to do, right? And in the time frame you say you do it, and almost everyone agrees that that's what it means to be accountable. Problem is, who here has always done what they said they're going to do in the time frame they said they do it? You know, we all will fall short of expectations at some point in time, whether it's behavior or performance, whatever it is. And invariably, it is the leader that has to then step in and hold that person accountable. And and I think holding someone accountable is actually a myth. What they're really doing is they're coming in and taking the accountability from that person, right? They're the ones that are enacting change to make it happen. And, and that's why we create the organizational structures we do, because if someone doesn't get their job done, the leader's got to step in and take the accountability. From them. If the leader doesn't get their job done, their leader's going to take it from them, right? So there's another way around which accountability can get managed, and that's to get the team to manage it. If someone's not meeting expectations, the team addresses it. And that's really the fundamental decision every leader's got to make is what and how do I want accountability to be managed? There'll be certain things I'm going to manage the accountability for. There'll be certain things I want the team to deal with. So the starting point is, is the leader saying, hey, I want it to be different than maybe the way it is. Which means, though, that they're going to have to let go of control. And that's scary for most leaders. It was for me, right? I mean, I wanted my team to be accountable. But at the end of the day, I wanted all the control. And that's not easy, right? So from the leader's perspective, they got to say, I want it. I'm willing to let go of control. Then there's kind of two paths that I think are important. One is I'll call the structural pieces. And the very first thing is we have to create clarity around what is the team accountable for. You go into most teams and ask everybody, right, basically about what you think the team's accountable for, and you're going to get six different answers. Then we have to have the metrics that tell us whether or not we're achieving that purpose. You know, do we, how do we know? So some form of measurement around which we know, and if we're not getting the desired results, the team then has got to get together and address it. You also need competent people and capable processes, but quite honestly, most teams already have both of those. They have competent enough people and they have capable enough processes. The big missing component for most teams from a structural perspective is that shared fate we talked about earlier, that what happens to one happens to all. And in business especially, the shared fate for most teams is literally just surviving the boss. And the conversations with each other are, did you hear what you said this morning? No, but did you see what you did yesterday? And that's what creates the bond. And while that can be a strong bond, it's not a very healthy one. So I think to a great degree, it's the leader's job to, to establish all those things. And I need to make sure there's a purpose and the metrics and captain people, people process, and I got to build a shared faith. And that's what I call the structural component. And it's not hard. It just takes time and attention. The behavioral component is the harder part, and that's getting the trust necessary um, so that we can learn to talk about our issues together. And the speaking for yourself is, is one of the most important components. And the, the other two that I think are critical is an agreement that, hey, we are no longer going to talk negatively about each other behind each other's back. 
And, and that is a norm behavior in most organizations. And I don't think it's done maliciously, but it's how very often we build bonds and relationships inside our teams and organizations, and it destroys trust. I mean, you and I, you and I may talk about our teammates all the time, and we're really close, and we think it's okay. But deep down, you'll, uh, you know, you'll know I'll do it to you. I know you'll do it to me. And so there, the trust gets destroyed. And so the second thing that has to happen is an agreement of we're just not going to do that anymore. It, we've tolerated it to this point, but that's no longer acceptable. Anymore, right? So getting people to speak for themselves, stopping the pairing, and then we just have to learn how to, to, to talk about our issues in, in, in every issue. I'll put it this way. Every issue has its source in the gap between expectation and reality. So whatever issue we have, we got to slow down and come to an agreement around what are our expectations? What are my expectations? What are your expectations? And very often that's where the gap lies. Sometimes we agree in the expectations. We just disagree on the reality, right? Like I expect you to be here at eight, you know that, but I'm not seeing you here at eight. And you're saying, well, I am here at eight. I'm just on the outside of the building. So we see reality different. The third source of issues is that we agree in the expectation. We agree, you know, that the expectations aren't being met, but we disagree in the impact. I don't think it's that big a deal. Why is it important I'm here at eight o'clock? I get the job done. Well, here's why I think it's important, and we need to talk about that. Right. So those are what I'll call the behavioral fundamentals that teams need to adopt. And as they then start to work through their issues together, following those rules. The rest just kind of falls into place. You break the contract and, and you know you start with the easier issues. You don't jump into the tough stuff. But in time, next thing you know, we find ourselves capable of taking on the real issues and the tougher issues. And then the team just starts to build this problem-solving muscle and we get stronger and stronger and better at this and it's more natural. And an exercise I'll have most people do is to think about the best team they've ever been on. And invariably, if you go back to the best team, you realize, yeah, we did this, you know. Some consultant didn't show up and teach us how to do it. We did it. But what you'll find is you had all those things in place from a structural perspective and you did, you know, work on your issues together and the team becomes strong and become accountable to each other. And, and that's when teams perform at high levels. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking there, what, what dawned on me is when I think about the best teams I've worked on, you know, we've been um, oftentimes together sometimes remote, you know, you know, I had a really great team here at AI with our, our success team, but um, talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing. Is it different during COVID and, and what impacts have that had? Because I, I know it impacts how you coach. Yeah, uh, this is, it's, it's, from my perspective, it's been fascinating to watch the impact this has had on teams. At the core of what I share is the belief that as human beings, we need to be connected to other people. In fact, we literally die if we lose that connection. For a baby, a baby has to be physically held enough, and if they're not, they'll die from a condition called anaclinic depression. But around the age of five months, that need for connection to other people transforms itself from a physical to a mental connection. And it's true for all human beings. All of us need to maintain some level of meaningful mental connection to other people. And, and without it, we will literally perish as well. And it's, it's to varying degrees, right? But it's true for everybody. And it's what drives our behavior to a great degree. I mean, I, I'm afraid to say what I really feel because I'm afraid of being ostracized. I'm afraid of being deemed a non-team player. I'm afraid of being fired. And, and all those things have their root in the fear of being disconnected from that team. So as, as COVID has is, is hit and, and people have moved into virtual settings, it's been fascinating to watch how hard people have worked to maintain that connection. You have virtual happy hours and 
you know, all these things that we all did just to maintain that connection. Now, some people are more comfortable working in an environment alone, right? And, and they've, they've transitioned easily. Other people like me need more connection and need more interaction, right? It's been harder, right? But what I'm convinced of is, and I've watched this with all the different teams I've worked with, those teams that were healthy pivoted and worked their way through this really well. Those teams that weren't healthy walking into this have really struggled. But all of them, even the healthy ones and unhealthy ones, um, in order to, to continue on and to be functional, have to work harder now to maintain that connection with each other. And I, I when people say, hey, we're going to go virtual forever, I don't believe it because that need for connection and interaction is so strong that, you know, as soon as it's safe to do so, obviously, then I think we'll work back towards that to some degree. Now, it may never always be the same. There's efficiencies that can be gained by not. Um, but that need is very, very strong and it's pivotal for teams to be successful. Oh, I, and I agree 100%. And, and I'm like you, I'm a people person. Yep. And for me, the hardest thing with COVID is not being in person with my teams, you know, our business development team and the success team and leadership and all that. Now, we, we have done, a, I think, a good job of, you know, like most companies, getting on video uh, meetings and stuff, but it's just, it, there's, it's not the same. Not the same. Not, not the same. same. Now there's an energy component that does not translate over the phone that you do have in person. Um, and, it, and we pick up so much of our meaning from other people from body language and, and other yeah. things that you, you don't get. So a lot's lost. And, and I, I give credit to everybody who's transitioned and they've made it work, right? But a lot more is lost than I think people realize by not being in person. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so before I let you go, where can people find your book? Oh, well, you get it on Amazon. It's, it, as you said, it's a very short book. I was actually approached by a publisher that said, hey, we've been looking for original content on this for years, and we'd love you to write a book, but we believe every business book is too long. So we yeah. only publish books that can be read in an hour. So we're going to limit you to 12,000 words, which was it was painful for me, but um, <laughs> it, it's, it's part of a series called uh, Night, Ignite Reads, and you can get it on Amazon. Uh, for like $11. It's, it's pretty cheap. And as you said, it's a pretty easy read, but hopefully it gives you everything you need to know to kind of start the journey down, the, you know, down this road up towards what I'll call functional and then ultimately accountable team. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Eric, hey, great seeing you again. Thanks for doing this and thanks for being on the show today, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care, Clay. Thanks for listening to On Air with AIA. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit AIACommunity.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. Until next time, be boldly you.